Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Still am. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Still going, huh? Yeah, yep. Hey, Casey, so I want to do a little role play. Okay. Okay, I want you to, you know, ask me, hey, Casey, how can you guarantee me that you won't ever get drunk again? Okay, okay. okay. three, two, one. <clears throat> hey, Casey, how can you guarantee me you won't ever get drunk again? You know what? It's crazy. But people actually ask that question all the time. You know what I mean? I remember yeah. like a year into my sobriety, I was talking to a, a guy and they said, hey, look, if we gave you a job, how could you guarantee me that you'll never do this again? I, I guess if somebody's offering you a job and you're a high profile person, they might want to, or even if you're just a regular Joe, they might want to know that. But I think I think most people want that. They want some security. <laughs> they, they don't want somebody who's getting drunk on the job. I yeah, agree. Yeah. And, and, and causing DUIs and doing all that. Right. And I remember sitting down and like... The old me wanted to lie to him and say, you know what? It would never happen again. I promise you this will never happen uh, again. You're a pleaser and yeah. you like to – you work a room pretty I well. I learned my lesson uh, and I will never do this again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I didn't say that. What would you say? I said I can't. He goes, what do you mean you can't? He goes, after everything that you've been through, you can't promise me that this will never happen again. And I said I can't. I said I know – more about this disease now. I know more about myself and I know that I can't make you that promise. But I can tell you that I have a better understanding of my addiction. I have a better understanding of the disease and I'm better equipped now than I've ever been to, to, to help me not let this happen again. But I cannot give you a promise. And he goes, that's crazy. And I go, that's the disease. Yeah. I cannot promise you that's that. That's honest. And uh, we're going to introduce you to our guest here in just a second. Uh, but he was talking about that guarantee, too, and how people want that. And what I found when people want that, they want it for themselves. They want it for their own peace of mind. Right. But they don't realize what pressure that puts on the addict. I remember, um, you know, we've got some new listeners. I remember when I got out of recovery and I'm driving home and I'm talking to my mom on the phone. And my mom was like, Whew. Good thing we'll never have to do that again. And you hear this, uh, and she goes, what do you mean, uh? And I go, I, I can't. Yeah. She goes, you can't? After everything you've put your kids through, everything you put your ex-wife through, everything you put us through, you can't promise us that this will never happen again? And I go, I can't, Mom. And you want me to promise you so you can sleep easy at night. But when I do give you that promise, all I'll have is that in the back of my head for all eternity. Yeah. And... I can see if something happens, I can almost hear your pitching voice going, I knew, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I'm just, you know, but, and, 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 and I got anxiety just thinking about that now. You know what I yeah, mean? Just yeah. hearing those conversations again. So I, I, I run an honest program. I have to tell you that I can't give you that guarantee and I can't give you that promise. But you're leaving off the last chapter of the story. What's that? Well, how did this boss, this guy interviewing you, how did he respond? Well, I didn't get the job at the time. Interesting. And, you know, and I think Did he, he seemed bothered. He seemed bothered. It seemed like that you wouldn't promise him a little bit. And, yeah. and, and there wasn't like a clear job offer on the table. And I'll tell you now, it's for the company I'm currently working for who have now hired me. OK. All right. Uh, you know what I mean? But I think he was just testing the waters to see where my headspace is and everything. And I just said, I can't. I can't do that. And um, I hope that uh, that the people listening, though, would understand that. It's kind of refreshing to have somebody just be authentic and honest with you and realize maybe that you're wanting the the promise for yourself, mm-hmm. but this person who's answering the question, the, the addict, 
that they're giving you honest information. And I would say that would be more valuable in the long run if you felt like, well, I'm hiring somebody that's going to be honest with me. But I think it also goes to why we started this podcast was for an education for everybody involved. Uh, because, you know, I remember, I remember talking with my ex-wife and this is when we were battling with me drinking and she goes, why can't you just stop? Mm-hmm. Can't you stop for me? Why can't you stop for the kids? And I go, I wish it was that easy. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, I really do. And, and the thing is, I've tried. Yeah. I mean, I, and I've said this before. I stood above my kid's bed as they slept and go, tomorrow's going to be different. Dad's not going to do this. Yeah. And I 100% meant it. And I wanted it to be true. And I did. But, you know. Isn't that amazing, though? Because I know, like, like probably every parent listening out there, I know how much you love your kids and you love to spend time with them. And if there's anybody on the planet we would change our behavior for, it would be for our kids. But that's the power of of the disease of addiction that you can't do it for somebody else. No, you have to do it for yourself. And once you realize that, there are so many people who we've had in this chair right here who've gone into recovery, who've gone to their first recovery because they ended up going back again, went in for the wrong reasons. Right. They went in for their work. They went in for their spouse. They went in for their kids, which don't get me wrong. Those are all good reasons to go in. But think- they never went in. Because they thought they had a problem. Right, right. They thought they went in for, you know, that they would get well, fixed. And that it- can move you from, remember, we've talked a lot about the science of behavior change from pre-contemplation to contemplation. You know, thinking about how you're impacting your loved ones, your job, your future. That sort of contemplation can get the ball rolling on behavior change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not enough, is it? No, it's it, it wasn't until I sat down and said, I've got a problem. Right. I thought my ex-wife had a problem. I thought my job had a problem. I, I, I didn't think I had a problem. Right. And it wasn't until I realized that I had a huge problem that I could start to change. And I, I think that's what's so powerful about, you know, you said you wanted to change for your kids. Mm-hmm. I did change for my kids, but I changed me. Right. I don't even know if that makes sense. No, but I think it because, makes sense. I mean, there are a big reason why I am sober today. Of course. Uh, Their because, motivation to keep going yeah, every day. Because they deserve the best father I can be. Right. And I wasn't the best father I could be when I was in active addiction. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't there. I wasn't present. I wasn't authentic. I was checking boxes, like so many people we've had on the podcast before, doing what I thought I needed to be doing. And what I was doing was not what I should. Yeah. And so I, that's the thing is that when you talk to somebody and you go, how can you promise me this will never happen? If you, if you want an honest answer, they'll tell you I can't. They can tell you I will try and I can get through today. And, and What can you promise? So let's, let's, let's dig in a little just for a sec. I like so, this. So, so you can't promise like absolutely never going to relapse. But what can you promise? I can promise to do my best and to give it everything I got. I can promise to be honest with you if you allow me. So I was going to say, would that be like for for the listener, somebody right now who maybe is really worried about having the same experience you had going in, applying for a job. They know that you've struggled with addiction, that you're in recovery. Uh, what if, what are they worried about getting that same question? Could they promise to always be honest with the boss if they're starting to have problems? Would that be appropriate, do you think? We've talked about this before. When I got fired the first time from uh, KSL, uh, my boss sat me down and said, had you told me you had a drinking problem, you'd still have a job here because we would have worked with you. And I yeah. said, but how do I tell my employer that I'm broken and not think that you're going to – and so 
I would like to think that, that I would still be working there and we would have had a different outcome. But I you didn't, never know. I mean, we don't know. We, that's what you know in the past. But I didn't trust I them. The fact that they they wanted. Yeah. It's a two-way street. Like, I think they need to advertise that more. Yeah. I think more big companies and more small companies, they need to advertise. They need to talk proactively to their employees and say, listen, we really have the attitude and the culture of being helpful and supportive, but you've got to be honest and come talk to us. We can help you find resources. They need to advertise the resources that might be available through their insurance and those kinds of things. But I absolutely would have been like you. I would have. I, w- I think I would have been scared to death to bring yeah, that up. Yeah, I and and so I think KSL is is very honest and and willing to help you if you will come out and do That's that. That's great. And, and I think there's a lot more companies now because of this podcast and what I did uh, with uh, the recovery center before I got my job back on TV. Is I understand the business a little bit better, and I've been to um, meetings and where they've talked about this and what employers are finding out and. And it's kind of a silly is that it's better for the company to get employees help versus firing them and training something new for the bottom line. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For the bottom line, it is better to fix your current employees. Absolutely. Than to fire them and hire new ones. I think it's uh, they say something like 10 times more expensive to train a new person than to, to you know deal with the person you have. And so I, so yeah, I think, I think we're come a long way. I think there's still a ways to go, but I think we're starting to have these open conversations. But I think fear holds people back from a lot of good things in life. Behavior change gets trumped, you know, by fear a lot of times. And so I think that's where companies like KSL and other companies, I would encourage them to do more advertising to kind of assuage the fear of the employees because it's still scary to go in and talk to your, you know, your employer and say, I, I have a problem with drugs or alcohol. Um, I don't know what more KSL could do rather than hiring a guy out of rehab no, and putting him back on TV. I, and I want to say I've been very, very impressed. I, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, that right there, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I, when I'm out and about, I was even at the hardware store this morning and someone said, Hey, I think that's cool that you got your job back. Yeah, and I think good. it's cool that KSL gave you your job. Yeah. Back. No, I think KSL, uh, I hope, you know, considers themselves on the forefront of handling these sorts of things the right way in our community, setting a standard for bigger companies on, on to how to support their employees. I think, I think they've done a fantastic job for you. All right. Well, hey, we got a great podcast for you today here on Project Recovery. Our guest today is Jordan Lee. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How can you promise me you'll never get drunk or addicted again? I won't. Simple, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I maybe a pinky promise. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> with my fingers crossed, I might do something like that. But I, 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 I wouldn't do it. Jordan Lee is with Deer Hollow uh, Rehabilitation Center. We're going to talk to him in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Jordan Lee, who just celebrated. Got your uh, chip last night. I did. 14 years of sobriety. All right. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, it works. How young are you? <laughs> How young? Yeah. 40 years young. Is that what you Yeah, 40 years old. Yeah. But uh, you've got an interesting story because uh, you've gotten sober twice. Well, at least. At least. <laughs> Where does the story of Jordan Lee begin? Uh, the story with Jordan Lee begins as the youngest of five kids. I grew up always believing I was the youngest of five kids. Turns out later on I was the youngest of six kids mm. to give you some fa- family dynamics. And I grew up in Taylorsville, Utah. 
in Kearns and being the youngest of five kids that I knew of and having a single mother that worked full time and a dad out of our life, it was very, I was raised by my siblings. Chaotic? I think I'm the favorite. I think I'm the favorite baby. I think I'm the most loved. I, I love I, the confidence with that. Hey, I'm the favorite. You know, mom never said it until like maybe, I don't know, the last 10 years it's starting to come out, right? Yeah. Since everyone else knew it, but then now I know it. Even through all my problems, I think that I was the most loved. Really? Well, being the youngest though, there it can be a little wild because by the time, you know, a parent has raised all those kids, it's kind of like, whatever, just do your thing, right? Or was your mom like on you? Oh, no, stuff? I had free reign and she yeah, was yeah, working. So she's I mean. gone in the morning. I remember getting myself to school in elementary and coming home and jumping on the tramp and getting beat up by my two older brothers and my sure. sister's boyfriends and whatever that looked like. But Now, I'm I'm dying here. Are we going to hear about the sixth kid or what, what happened? Yeah, my big brother Montel. <laughs> <laughs> my big brother Montel, he lives in California. And, you know, when I was older, my mom shared with me that she, she gave up a – when my dad left on his mission, and she had a, a, she got pregnant, and she gave a son up for adoption. Okay, and it, it's always a weird thing. Like, do you find them? Are they resentful? What does that look like? And right. it just so happened that when his mother passed away, uh, that they found papers and reached out to us maybe three years ago now. And it's weird ah. because he's a 10, 12 year old version of me. And we like the same stuff. We're into the same nerdy stuff, the Star Wars, the movies, the all that other other things. But we've just lived separate lives for the last 40 I years. I just uh, finished reading uh, some twin studies on a different subject. But they're always fascinating uh, when you see, like, siblings raised apart and, and different things like that. How, you know, obviously there's nature, but there's also nurture and how the difference is. And you can have somebody raised in a totally different place by different people and it turns out you like a lot of the same things. It's just, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. When I went to his house and stayed there, it was weird. It looked like my brother's house. Like I knew him the whole time. He just was. It some, felt, felt he, like home a little bit, huh? You know, technically it was your brother's house. It was my brother's <laughs> house. It was my brother's house. So, that, so then we have, we've had Thanksgiving and Christmas and family trips to Lake Powell together. Oh, and that's cool. It feels like yeah. there was never a gap, honestly. Oh, that's great. It's been okay. cool. Well, I just needed you to finish that part of the story because I'm sitting here thinking, what, what? We can get into that yeah, another that, time. Enough, but yeah, I mean, that's, I, that's, that's good. good. And we'll let you, well, we want you back because you do a lot of stuff with the first responders and that's a, a group of addicts that really need some love and some support. But where does your journey into addiction begin? I think it begins as a, as a young child being raised uh, by my siblings because every, every child wants, some, wants to be loved, mm-hmm. has the need to be loved and nurtured. And I think my problems begin. I was kicked out. I went to three different fifth grades. And so I think my early issues were anger issues because I – and I felt loved. I, I felt so loved, but when I had things crop up, I used violence or anger to protect myself or to – So you were kicked out of three different elementary schools? I was, yeah. Uh, for for aggressive behavior? For violence, yes. Yeah. And they're like, what's wrong? Our little baby, <laughs> little baby Jordan, he's so angry. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I feel like I mostly stuck up for – righteousness. Like I've always felt like any of the bad behavior that I had, I was usually trying to stick up for somebody else that couldn't stick up for themselves. So you're like a fifth grade vigilante. I always felt like, I felt like a protector. Like my whole life, I've always felt like I should protect those. My mom always said, um, if you're going to get in a fight, make sure you hit them first, but always (laughs) protect, help protect somebody that can't protect themselves. Okay. That's pretty solid advice. advice. Yeah. Mom had, mom has some good stuff. 
And so in fifth grade, you had some anger issues. Uh, mm-hmm. You're being raised by your siblings. Uh, your mom's working. Uh, you got free range kind of a childhood. Yeah. So then they sent me to live with my grandparents, and my grandfather was Air Force. And so I had structure. I had homework after school. I had 5 o'clock dinner to finish out my fifth grade year, and I didn't know what that was like. But in a structured environment, and and, and drug addicts and alcoholics can relate to this, with positive structure, we do really well. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we succeed. We excel. You know, we do all the things that – we think society or that we should be doing. And I was able to do those things. Then my family moved from Taylorsville to Cottonwood Heights. And I think that's another thing is they think, Oh, if we move, if you know, if we transplant, things are going to be different. And it's the surroundings that's getting them. Yeah. Yeah. It's if we change our surroundings, but wherever you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of neat because then when I went to sixth grade, I think sixth grade was fairly normal for me. Seventh grade, yeah, it got a little bit weird, but I think every seventh grader is a little bit junior weird. Junior high, right? Yeah, junior yeah. high. And then in eighth grade, it took a turn. And, I, and looking back at it, the people that I looked up to or the people, the influence I had in my life um, were my sister's boyfriends, and I don't think they made good choices. And mm. so I was looking up to people that weren't doing good things. And so the role models or the influence in my life wasn't that positive. How well, much older were you? Were your sisters than you? So like these boys that you were looking up to, how old were they? Two years. So my, couple years. we're all two years apart. So my one sister, two years. My other, other sister, Lindsay, two years. And then two years. So when you're brothers. in eighth grade, like a 10th grade or 11th grade, they're pretty cool. Really cool. So they got cars. Yeah. They got, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they smoked and they drank and they used drugs and I wanted to be a part of it, was the truth. It just I just didn't know how or what that felt like. And so I remember... Stealing some beer and thinking it was going to be cool to drink beer. I think this was in seventh or eighth grade, and we cracked open some beers, and I chugged one down. I thought, gosh, that's awful. Let's not do this. <laughs> well, these guys are – why are they drinking beer all the time? This is awful. So I, I didn't do that, but then it came to smoking, uh, smoking cigarettes. I remember stealing a pack of cigarettes from Smith's, and I pretended to smoke one. I thought that was so cool. I ripped through a pack of smokes in the next hour <laughs> and then stole another pack, right? And then the kind of funny thing is, is that when I – I did that with a couple of guys, and those guys are now sober today, which has been a really cool part of my story this last year, is that they're newly sober friends that we've rekindled that relationship. But smoking the cigarettes led to smoking weed, and they always say, you know, weed is the gateway drug, and for me it was definitely a gateway drug, and it got me kicked out of eighth grade. And what proceeded to happen is I didn't go to school eighth, ninth, tenth, or eleventh grade. Wow. What's a kid do with himself all those years? Sell drugs, sell, sell. I mean, when you're home and no one's there to watch you, and you're in eighth grade, and they try to send you to Valley or homeschool and and try to give you some structure. I really think that it snowballed so fast for me. And my my mom would always say, "I didn't know something was wrong. I didn't know you were hurting. I didn't know you were going through these things." I think the signs were definitely there for somebody that was skilled. But l- looking back, I I don't think anyone knew the magnitude of the pain and loneliness that I felt at that time and that drugs and alcohol started to have an influence because the second I did those things, I was accepted by my by my sister's boyfriends and they were an influence in my life. And out of my two older brothers, one of them through the 90s cooked math and, and I thought that was cool, right? And then my other brother, he was uh, always, they were both straight A students, but he was went, served a mission, very successful, very brilliant and so I, I had a good role, role model in my life, and it depends on what that is. I, I had a lot of role models. It's just which one did I choose to follow? And you chose? 
the bad boy. It was too late. Yeah. I, I mean, once once you get accepted by a group of people that love you, and then I thought the coolest thing ever was in eighth grade. I got my first half pound of weed, and I thought I I really believed, like in Bill's story in, in, in the Big Book, that I had arrived as an eighth grader. And I thought, cool, well, I can just sell weed to all the local high school and junior high people out of my mom's house, and that's what I proceeded to do. And not go to school. And it was it was lockup. It was youth treatment centers. It was I was a runaway. It was tons of felony charges. I got a DUI and a fleeing the scene. And I wrecked a friend's mom's brand new car at 15 years old. So to get DUIs and flee the scene and have a lot of felonies at 15, <laughs> that all that all accumulated. I'm sorry to laugh, but that's like quite the rap sheet by the it, time you're 15. It was it was pretty it was pretty rough. But yeah. the, the image in my head of that. There's a couple, but one specifically is I remember being in Sandy City and being hauled out in an orange jumpsuit and shackles in front of my mom and my brother. And the shame that I felt, you know, you feel cool and you feel like you have all these friends and you have all this stuff going for you. But when you're, when it all ends, none of those people are there and you're staring there looking at the reality of the situation and your family with tears in their eyes and it doesn't feel good. No, I've been there. Casey, when you were in eighth or ninth grade. Mm Mm-hmm. What would you say your identity was about? Like, what what did you want to be, or like, what was your identity when you were that age? I wanted to drive a diesel and be a lawyer. Is that because those go together? <laughs> yeah, but that's what I wanted to do, yeah. and I wanted to go to. A but state- that's what you wanted to do. What was your identity in those grades? Like, what who who were who was Casey in those grades? I was the guy that would show up to a party that wasn't alcohol at, and I would make people laugh, and I would see which girl was laughing the hardest, and then I would try to get her number. Okay, so and that probably was you repeated that over and over again in class, you know, at parties. Up until I got married. Up until you got married. That was my playbook. That was your playbook. That was, yeah, my yeah, playbook. Yeah. that was your identity. So yeah. that the reason I'm asking is we all in those junior high years and early high school we're heavy into trying to find an identity, you know, and that's why. For some kids, it's such a rough time. For other kids, it feels. I was a class clown. Yeah, yeah. That and and you know, some kids are athletes, some kids are students. And for you, Jordan, you you found this uh, thug life, like this drug dealer, Pablo Escobar identity. Sure. And it sounds like you held on to that pretty tough, despite the consequences, because you know it, a lot of kids would give up their identity if if like being the class clown meant you got hauled out in shackles you know, from the school in a jumper or you were going to youth corrections or all this stuff, you might have started to tone it down a little mm-hmm. bit. Maybe not. I don't know. I know no, you I pretty well. You probably, probably wouldn't would have. have You'd have cracked the cops up. Yeah. yeah. But like, uh, but but don't you find that interesting that at that age, you really needed an identity to the point that despite whatever consequences they threw at you, you still held on to this is who I am. Ab- absolutely. The lengths that I went to to continue the insanity in my life were extreme. I mean, you said you were run away. That's a big, like, how do you take care of yourself that age? That can be kind of hard. Unless you got a you got pocket a lot- full of cash because you're dr- dealing drugs. Pocket full of cash and a lot of dope gets you into a lot of places, sleeping on a lot of couches. I, I remember I, was- I hadn't been home for maybe six months. And on my 16th birthday, maybe 10, 11 at night, I called my mom from somebody's house. And she answered, and she's crying. She says, oh, happy birthday. I just want to see my baby boy. And I just said, I'm safe. I love you, Mom. And that's hard, right, for a kid. Yeah. And, and during that time, I graduated uh, two years of drug court, and I was on meth the whole two years, a, a youth drug court. And the lengths that I would go to is I carried clean urine everywhere I went to graduate drug court. I mean, wow. I, I, I graduated treatment center, and they knew I was high the whole time, but I— 
I got off on getting one over on the system and the people that were trying to protect me. I think that was as big of addiction for me. Oh, sure. Was feeling like I was getting away with something that I was crafting. You were smarter than them. Well, Correct. many addicts think they're smarter than everybody <laughs> out there. And in, in a lot of ways, addicts are very, very smart. Uh, but they, 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 Or crafty. Yeah. But that, I mean, I, I get that addiction is that, I mean, I, I was being able to pull all of this together and drink all the time. And I, I was smarter than the disease. I was smarter than everybody else because I was proving them wrong until I wasn't. Absolutely. I was, I was a fraud and I was lonely, right? In a group of people, I talk about it all the time. As a kid, I was so lonely. And most of my friends that we just drank and smoked weed and we did acid and mushrooms or whatever, but I was secretly doing a lot of cocaine and meth, even from the people that I was close to. And it kind of dates things because I had a pager. I was dealing drugs with a pager and it was broken. And the girlfriend of mine at the time... This is when I, I crashed as a teenager, as a young kid, and this kind of the, – the being a fraud accumulates into my, my adult story was that I got a bunch of text messages and I was out selling drugs using my girlfriend's pager while her mom, who had uh, mental health issues, was texting or, or messaging the, the pager and I ignored it. When I finally got a sick feeling in my stomach, we went and picked up my girlfriend and drove to her house and her mom had hung herself in the garage. Oh, oh man. And as a 16-year-old who – felt responsible like I took that on me right and I yeah. let her get out of the car because I had drugs cops and firefighters are there and they go in to attend to this situation and that was the first time as a kid that I thought I got to stop doing this like I'm going to quit and you know what I need to do I need to go back to grandma and grandpa's house right they'll let me stay there and I remember doing cocaine and I thought I'd never do drugs at grandma's and grandpa's house and I remember getting high before the funeral and nobody knew that I was doing these hard drugs as a young kid and that I couldn't turn the corner, that I couldn't be there for anybody, that I couldn't make these things happen. And to where eventually my mom never stopped fighting for me as a youth, and she got me into a good facility where I was able to get sober the first time that I was actually able to get some time when I was 17 years old. That's a lot let's to pause, Yeah, let's pause on that for just a second. That, that's quite a few years ago now. How do you... How have you reframed? How do you interpret that experience now? You felt responsible at the time that the girlfriend's mom had been trying to text you and, or page you, you know. Uh, what do you think about it now? I did. I went through the amends process, you know, after that treatment center, and I made my amends and I made peace with God. And I believe that God, you know, in, in recovery, God is either everything or he is nothing. And what is my choice to be? And God is everything. God is everywhere. And I, and I can't alter those things. I, I can be an influence to change those things, but I do feel like I have a debt uh, the rest of my life to repay the damage that I've done to so many people. And so I, I'll never forget that all the service and all the effort that I've put towards making a change in the mental health field and in the in the substance abuse area, that it's just a drop in the bucket for what I have to give back. So I think those things happened, and there's not much that I could do about the past. But what I can do is I can change the future and the narrative for me moving forward from that time. Yeah, that's a wow. that's a beautiful answer. I, I asked that, and I knew it was a hard question to ask. And thank you for being willing to answer it, uh, because I think it is probably representative to a lot of people who've had hard experiences, maybe not exactly like that, where they they hold on to that feeling of responsibility, guilt, shame, whatever it may be. And instead of it being something that motivates positive change, like it sounds like you have processed that through your experience, 
um, it, it drags them down and it continues to be something that uh, perpetuates their addiction. And I'm sure you've seen that with, with people you work with. Absolutely. And I think a lot of bad things happen to everybody. And people always ask, oh, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do these things happen? And I think one of the biggest faults of other people is using that to remain a victim and to to carry that shame is kind of a, a defect of character uh, because they want to be a victim. They want to carry that shame. And so for me, it's always to advise them to to make a difference, make sure that doesn't happen to somebody else. Things happen to us so that we can gain victory over them to share them with other people so they don't have to carry that longer or as long as some of us did. So it can become a, a strength in your life or so to speak, like we say, you can learn from it and grow or it can keep dragging you down. And I think for some people who are deep in their addiction right now, if they're honest with themselves, they may be holding on or at least not really addressing those sorts of issues because it allows them to stay in their addiction. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, the psychologist in the room is going to make a plug for therapy because that's that's one of those things that can be just so difficult to address. But not only does it help you gain a, a healthy emotional perspective on these traumatic and difficult experiences that you might have had in the past, but it also is that first step into really addressing your addiction and 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 lean, living a, a life in recovery because if you don't unpack your bag deal those things deal with those things are you're not really in recovery you're not like you may not you may be sober like we've talked about before like sobriety is not the same as recovery recovery and and so yeah that's a that man what a tough experience but what a healthy example of how any of us can maybe learn from our tough experiences. Jordan, you said something that uh, I really liked. Uh, you said, people say all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? The reality is bad things happen to all people. Right. I mean, it, it's just... Bad things, it, it rains on everybody. Some people bring <laughs> umbrellas. Yep. And it's like, that. you know, bad things do happen to everybody. Good things happen to everybody. Yep. That's the difference between an optimistic viewpoint and a pessimistic viewpoint of your life. Yeah, crap's going to happen to everybody, but some people learn to bring an umbrella and move on anyway. You're listening to Project Recovery. We'll be back with Jordan Lee in just a second. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willier. Our guest today is Jordan Lee with Deer Hollow. Uh, you just talked about kind of a traumatic, uh, I guess, early childhood. Yeah. Uh, so much in the fact that uh, your mom finally decided uh, it was time for you to get help. And at the age of 17, you went in to get sober. Where'd you go to get sober? I went to Lifeline in North Salt Lake. No, exactly. What did you think about the program? It saved my life. I loved it. I thought that the therapist is still a great friend of mine today. I met other good friends in that center that I'm still close with in the community today that I love, and they absolutely saved my life, taught me principles that helped. But you told me earlier you're 40, and that was 17. I went to Ogden High. I'm doing the math. But it sounds like uh, you had to go back out again. Uh, I don't think I had to, but I definitely did. Um, and and. That's part of my story. So the nice thing about going to Lifeline is they said, oh, yeah, it's a 90-day program. Well, I was inpatient for, I think, six months, and I was there for 18 months. So obviously I had some some things to work on. I remember I went in there at 120 pounds, and I was 220 in about a month or two from being there. I, I had been depleted. And what they did is they took me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous there. They gave me really good therapists. 
that I could relate to that had been where I'd been that knew a way out. And they showed me that way out by guiding me through the 12 steps. And it was really neat because when you go to a lot of treatment and you go to a lot, they, they give you credits, right? And and the magic that turned from going to Lifeline is that I made it back from my senior year of high school at Brighton. And I was a 4.0 student. I was uh, on the honor roll. I got to wrestle uh, with the team. I had a couple of varsity matches that I was, I always wanted to do that. I got to go to a school dance. So as a young kid, I thought those things would never, never be a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And having that therapy, having those people support in my life. My brother, when he left on his mission, he said, hey, do you want to use my Mustang while I'm gone? So I had a 67 Mustang. I dated the, the high school cheerleader. And and I was floating, although I had diarrhea for, for 90 days because I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know how to hang out with no, normal people. I didn't know how to show up to class. I just really put one foot in front of the other. Uh-huh. And the gifts of the program – and of and of my higher power, which is God, came into my life as swiftly as 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 I had let them exit every single time. Sometimes seems magical, doesn't it? It was magic for sure. It's like zero to hero. You got to have that senior year and do all the cool stuff that you'd always wanted to be do. Be honest with you, it sounded like majority of the eighties movies. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Where's John Hughes? We yeah, need to John get him Hughes in wrote that. You yeah. know what I mean? But you're here you're living it in real life. Ninety nine was a good year for me. It, so, it was. Yeah, it was a really good year for me. So you graduate high school, what does life look like for Jordan? Um, you know, in, in treatment, they said, hey, here's a, here's a, my mom says, here's a Book of Mormon. She always gives me a Book of Mormon. They give me a big book. They said, if you read these things, they'll change your life. So in leaving treatment, they always say, if you want to keep this forever, you got to go to the Alano Club, right? You got to go to recovery. At that time, I'd quit smoking, drinking, using drugs, and I went to the Alano Club, and it was like a biker club. I didn't want to be a part. I, I, I just didn't what fit in. What is the Alano Club? The Alano Club is kind of the hub for most 12-step meetings in, in Murray and in Salt Lake, and it's a, it's a really neat place. But as a 17-year-old, as a young person trying to get sober, there's a lot of obstacles. You still have to turn 21. You still have to do all of these things. But the one thing that stuck to me is that if the, if the root of the disease is selfishness and self-centeredness, then I needed to be of service. And my one brother had got his life together in 2001, and I was able to help him during that time. This is the brother that was cooking meth? This is the, Yeah, this is my, my big brother, Adam, who, who's been clean ever since, ever since 2001. And my other brother served a mission, and I saw the, the, the difference in their life. So I thought, you know what? I'll go, I'll go on a mission. So I saved up. I sold my Mustang. I uh, gave my brother's Mustang back. I got a different one. I, I was going to say, did you sell your brother's Mustang? No, I to gave go it back to him. <laughs> and I saved up my money, and I, I, I just made a decision. I'm going to go on a mission. And I wasn't really raised in the church or, or those types of things, but I thought I could be a service. I could do this. I read the books. I believed in it. I had a testimony, and and I felt like I was gifted a new life. I didn't really live during those five years like I was going to make it to twenty anyway. So since I I was there, I thought let's be a part. Let's let's be a part of a solution on a bigger scale. So I decided to serve a mission. I sold my car to pay for my mission, and um. I, I left the girlfriend. I left. That was hard. It was difficult to leave and do all those things. But when I came home, uh, out of my mission, about 20 months, maybe a little bit less, I, I blew out my knee playing church ball. And I Which, had, for those who don't know, church ball is vicious. <laughs> it's probably one of the most vicious sports. <laughs> well, it's where it's where all the, the really nice Mormon guys who are nice and polite all week long get to ha- get their anger out. Yeah. And and I've some of the scariest moments of my life have been playing church basketball. Even I played church ball. It probably goes football, 
church ball rugby. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That's the hierarchy of of impact. Yeah. I wish it was impact. It was a carpeted floor or whatever, but you're right. The church ball gets pretty hectic, and and I blew out my MCL, ACL, my meniscus, and a guy in the the ward says, hey, they're going to send you home. Don't tell them. So I walked on a bum knee for the next three months until they saw it. And then they sent me home. I didn't want to go home early. I didn't want to get sent home, and I didn't want to have to come back and all those things that that a young kid thinks about. Because for people who don't know, it's a 24-month commitment when you go on a mission. So you're almost there. You had four months left, and then you blow out. So you rub some dirt on it and walk it off. Rub some dirt on it. And you know what? I was a really good missionary because I had seen some stuff, right? As a young kid, I had been in some dark places, and I had some good experience. And so I was really – when they send you to to go to North Dakota, Minnesota, and Wyoming, and you're just you're hanging out in trailer parks and you're talking to people about God and and Jesus and stuff, it was easy for me. It was fun. I loved it. I I it didn't was seem scary to go to those places. Not not yeah. at all. I loved it. And so I didn't want to go home early. And I, and then when I did, I had knee surgery, and the church took care of it, and it was awesome. But the thing that happened to me is that in the book it talks about over any considerable time with this disease, it gets worse, never better. And, and there's a lot of different examples in the big, big book that discuss that, and I didn't understand it. That was where I fell short in that first time getting sober is that I didn't work the steps. I, I took what recovery had gave me, and I waved and said, thank you. I've got a – so many people do this. I got a job. I got a girlfriend. I got a car. I'm good. I'm going to be okay. They don't understand the details of a lifelong disease and how it can be treated – how it has to be treated if you're going to have lifelong success. Mm-hmm. And so I ate the pills. I ate the pain pills as prescribed. And when the pills ran out, I was completely dope sick. I'll never forget it. And my, my buddies and stuff, I, I called them and one of them came over and I'm like, dude, I'm sick. I can't do anything. My back hurts. I'm sweating. I feel awful. And he's like, dude, you're dope sick. Did you quit your pain pills from your knee surgery? And I said, yeah, I quit them yesterday. He's like, yeah, you're totally sick. He went and got me a pill from his parents' cupboard, right, which everyone can do. What a great friend. <laughs> and the second he gave it to me, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I mean, it was 10 minutes later. I'm up and I'm ready to move. And he's like, yeah, you're dope sick. You're addicted to, to opiates. Maybe not. I understand that today. And for some weird reason in my head, I thought it was a good idea to drain the $10,000 I had saved for my mission that my mom didn't use and get in a car and drive to Mexico and pick up 600 Oxycontin 80s. <laughs> That escalated. That, yeah, I was going to say, that was, <laughs> that was zero to 100 <laughs> real fast. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that all happened, and I was home two weeks. I met a girl. I asked her to marry me, I think, in the next month or so. I, took- I feel like you have a lot of energy. <laughs> like, you don't sit around and do nothing for very yeah. long, do you? I'm a, I'm a little busy, but, yeah. but I'm yeah. a doer, right? I, yeah, you I, are. I like to take action. I yeah. mean, that's always been a thing for me. Yeah. And the weird thing in my head is I justified it because I hadn't been in the drug world for a long time and I thought I need to make some money. If people are really dumb enough to spend a dollar a milligram or, or 50 to 100 bucks for one of these pills, I guarantee I can get them for less because I had that mindset for a long time. I'm going to let this old friend of mine that still does this, I'll fund the business and then we'll split the profits. And so we literally. You're an angel investor. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and, and we. Josh is dying over that right now. We, we drove straight down to San Diego. We walked across to Tijuana. It took me a day to, to find what I wanted. And I, and I grabbed a bunch of pills for eight bucks a piece and I came home. And what happened at that time was on the drive home, I did 1280s. Uh, I sniffed 1280s on the drive home. So you one an hour. sniffed 1280s. And I didn't, I'm, I'd never been an opiate guy. I'd been you know, a, a cocaine, meth, and everything else. 
Sure. I remember my buddy said, what are you doing? You're wasting the opiates and you might die. And I'm like, for me, it was always lay out a pile, finish it. Let's go take the, take a fifth bottle cap off and throw it away, drink it till it's gone. And that was the progression of the disease for me for all those years that I, I wasn't participating in drugs and alcohol. The second I put a substance back into my body, I was off and running. I was immediately stuck in that disease where I had to feed it. And I thought, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to have to feed this through. And and that's basically what took over. Was it sounds like, so last night my neighbor came over to help me get my golf cart running. Uh, and it's been dead for like four years. And it almost sounds like you, Jordan. This is going to be crazy. And we lifted up the open and he got some carb cleaner and he sprayed it in there. And every time he sprayed it in there, it's kicking golf. You know what I mean? It sounds like, but that sounds like you. Once you got it in your body, it was just, let's, let's go. Pedal to the metal. It was all go, and that that ten thousand was thirty thousand dollars in three days. Um, and so what I did is I got right back in the car and I drove straight back down there, and I did the same thing. And I thought, well, that's easy money. I just you know I just made twenty grand. I'm going to do this again. And I didn't know that there was an opioid epidemic and that oxycotton's were what they were. I had I had no clue. The problem was, and I was popular because I wasn't going to sell one eighty. I was going to sell ten for four for four hundred dollars, and little did I know people were paying double that. And so it escalated to a point where the liar, the thief, and the cheat in me as a youth that liked to get away with things was there. I, I paid for a portion of the wedding for the car that I had. I got married. I got married, and, and I got sealed in the temple. I had a fake job downtown. After driving down, you know, three or four times in a row, I was flying down by myself to to San Diego and walking across to Tijuana. So you're deceiving everybody at this point, like correct. So for the listener to get married in the LDS temple, you you can't be doing drugs. Sure, unless you (laughs) unless you lie about it. Well, you shouldn't. (laughs) Well, what I mean is, you had to deceive. I was lying to everybody, including myself. You had a fake job. I mean, what does that mean? What do you mean you had a fake job? So the wife, the wife thought I had a sales job downtown, and those were days where uh, I would leave and I'd be selling pills all day. Well, it was a sales job. It was a sales (laughs) job. I did my best to be, and and that all came to a crash when I once again when I tried to get sober. Is I remember I I flew to San Diego and I'd give myself four hours to take a taxi, walk across, grab what I needed, and come back. And I went down there and I had twenty five thousand dollars strapped to my leg, and my guy was not there. And so what happens is you start shopping to find other pills and different things because at that point, after that short period, I had a high tolerance uh, for opiates in my system. So I. Not only did I want and need to sell it to support my own habit, I had to. And he didn't have what I needed, and so I shopped around. And there was a really nice bar there where you could order a 40, an Oxy 40 and a Corona, and you could hang oh, out for a little bit. Gosh. And so I told the guy that I needed I needed a couple thousand 40s or so many 80s, and he, he lit up. He said, when do you need them? I said, I need them right now. And he said, well, that's going to be X amount of dollars. I said, yeah, I've got a flight in two hours I have to catch. So, of course, some, he came back with some really fine gentlemen, maybe four or, five, four or five guys, and they drug me into an alley and they tried to arrest me, and I was scared. And not only scared, I didn't know if they were going to arrest me, kill me, beat me, take my money, whatever that looked like, and so I started the fight. And I just started to throw punches at these guys with like my life dependent on it, and I ran. I ran as fast and as long as I possibly could until I ran back to the border. And I remember looking at the USS Midway and calling my wife. On, on a flip phone and just I, I was I wanted to be in tears because I was in some, so much fear 
of what had happened in such that's a short time. That's scary stuff. That's real, that's real life and death stuff maybe. Absolutely. And I just said, honey, I'm coming home. And I said it like I'm coming home because I'm going to get on a flight and come home. But she thought I was downtown working a sales job in Salt Lake City. Yeah. But you're running from the Mexican cartel. Yes. Wow. So that's when I started to try and get sober again. And I, I was probably you know, 22, 23 years old. And at that time I thought, oh, oh let's go to the methadone clinic. And – uh, I, I, I didn't know about recovery. I had forgotten that – I didn't know a fellowship. I didn't know that there were so many different options for sobriety or treatment or – You didn't or, have a community. I did not have a You've community. You've been isolating yourself, lying to the world. To everybody. And so I went to the methadone clinic and then with a buddy of mine who's actually now – another buddy that's now sober today that celebrated a couple of years – and our goal was who can do more methadone. And what happened is a month later, I'm on. <laughs> I'm not laughing, but it's, it's, it was. Uh, we're seeing the pattern again, yeah, right? Yeah, like, this this the is the case yeah. of personality. It's the all or nothing. Everything's a competition. We're not leaving anything on the table. You know, we're all in all the time. And and even at the methadone clinic, it turns into this: who can do the most? There's 300 milligrams of methadone a day, oh, which, which, which anyone that's been done oh. methadone. It's a lot. And yeah, I was a, a zombie. Lot. And I remember I got a – I thought, oh, I'm on the methadone. I can get a job. And I was at a sales job with a headset. And I remember f- waking up and somebody's yelling at me in my headset saying, I can hear you breathing. <laughs> I can hear you breathing. I'd hang up the dialer and I'm like, I'm a zombie. I'm a danger. I'm a walking zombie. And throughout these these next three years while I was, while I was married to my first wife, um, nobody – it was hard not to see that something was clearly wrong with me over this time because I would always try and, and detox cold turkey. So I thought, oh, I'm getting off the methadone because the methadone would take me back to, which became crack, smoking crack and doing heroin. That that became a thing. And then drinking every chance that I got to take the edge off of any of those. At some point, the first wife has got to think something's up. Yeah. A year into it, I got divorce papers and, and then we separated. And that was tough because – um, it was awful, right? It was awful to put somebody else through that same pain that I felt like I put through a previous girlfriend and, 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 and things of that nature. And, um, what happens is when we get, I went, my sister let me come live at her house and I got 30 days sober. I remember I slept for 14 days, uh, cause I probably hadn't slept for a long time. And after getting 30 days, they invited me to go to a Cottonwood high school, a play, the in-laws and, and my, and my wife that we were getting a divorce. And after we even get a short time, 30 days after putting people through that kind of trauma and trouble, they see us again. They see maybe the person they married. They're yeah. like, hey, where's my husband? Where's where's Jordan, right? I would get asked all the time because I really wasn't there anymore. Once once I get going, I'm, no, I'm just a vessel, it feels like. Yeah. And after that, she said, I'm moving to St. George. I'm getting away from you. I need a fresh start. And after 30 days, they saw me again. Even a, a kind of a tattered version of me was better than the person they had seen for the last year. Yeah. And then she asked me to move down to St. George with her and start something new. So did you? I did. And I worked at a treatment center down there, a youth treatment center, which I, I loved and I was really effective at. But once again, I hadn't, I didn't have the community. I didn't have a fellowship to surround me. I had brought, I brought God, a God of my understanding at the time into my life. But I really didn't have one that I could be completely honest with. Uh, all I had was that separation I believe that a lot of people get caught in this mess too is when you work at a treatment center and you work with troubled youth, do you substitute that for your recovery? You think, I work with these people. I don't need to do something for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you get paid, so when you receive a paycheck 
to do something involving in recovery or service. It's no longer service. It's a job. When you get paid to help right. other people, it's it's different. Although it's rewarding and it can be fulfilling, it, it cannot be a substitute for an individual's personal recovery. So how do you uh, end up in rehab again or do you end up in rehab again? Mm, no, I end up in jail a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Um my family made a huge effort to get me clean and sober again because they knew how what a mess it was. They would drive me out of town, and I would detox cold turkey from the high levels of drugs I was doing. And and then I'd get caught stealing stuff. I'd steal from my mom. I'd steal from everybody. And um, one time I went, and I was with my sister, and I she let me use her car to go get drugs. Well, my older brother, who had now been sober for a while, comes over and says, hey, where's your car? Where's Jordan? And she said I took the car. Well, he called the cops, made a police report. I got a, like an auto theft charge, a felony on this, which they were just – I read the police report later when I had my record expunged later on that they made up that I was shooting up in mom's bathroom. I had stolen all this stuff. Most of those things were all true, just not that day. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's just be honest. And, um, uh, and so a lot of those charges and, and a lot of other charges followed me. And so when I was working at this treatment center, Cinnamon Hills in St. George, I remember seeing cops come in. You know, and I go. I remember getting on the microphone and saying, "Somebody's going to have a bad day." And then, and then the next call on the mic was, uh, "Jordan, could you come to the back parking lot?" And, and Jordan's uh, about to have Jordan. a bad day. Yeah. So I was arrested, and then, and then after that one year, I I was a dry. I, they call it a dry drunk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. I hadn't used, but I I I thought things were good just because I wasn't putting drugs or alcohol into my body, but. I probably wasn't pleasant. I probably wasn't doing you – know, I wasn't doing bad things, but I probably wasn't a pleasant person to be around because I had no solution, direction, guidance or, or – or You just weren't around. using. I just wasn't using. And so that – we moved back to Salt Lake. And when I moved back to Salt Lake, things spun in my head. And I'll never forget it. My back was hurting. It seems like pain – like I swear the devil uses pain – uses everything, right? uses all sorts of addictions. But I was like, oh, my back's hurting and somebody gave me a pill. They said, oh, do you want one of these pills? It was a lower tab. I ate that pill, and the next day I bought an ounce of cocaine, cooked it, smoked the whole thing to my head, and I was divorced like three weeks later. <laughs> it was it, – it, That it, escalated. It, uh, things escalate quickly for Jordan. Yeah. 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 So, so that three-year marriage ended, and it ended fast. And then what happened was is she kicked me out of the house that we had. Uh, she said, I don't want you staying there. So I went to live in mom's basement. Um, again, the basement that I sold drugs for, for all those years. And then I found out she wasn't living in the home. And I'd like to get into some, some solution stuff rather than, rather than the mess stuff. So, uh, so I will, I'll escalate this. So then what happened is I moved back into the house cause she wasn't there. I unplugged the garage door, boarded up, put a two by four in front of the front door and then proceeded to hang out in this house and sell all the furniture and get high until I was sitting on a lawn chair in front of a fireplace and I eventually had to crawl in my underwear next door and have my mom pick me up and take me to grandma's house. And I came to at grandma's house with my grandmother rub- rubbing Vaseline all over my face and putting mittens on my hands. And I remember thinking, what in the world is going on here? And I had I was smoking so much crack and heroin that I had heat blisters all around my lips. All my fingers were burnt and fried. Oh, my gosh. And I um, – and so she was just trying to, to – heal me and uh and so then i thought that'd be enough and i remember i thought i'm sober now i'm just gonna smoke crack and drink beer 
I think that's acceptable. I'm not sure that's the definition of sober. No, I'm just... But in an addict brain, it makes sense. The heroin and meth is real bad. I'm just going to keep it simple and see if I can get through right, this. Right, And so as a, being homeless at this time and trying to make things work and stumble through life, I went to a house um, to buy an ounce of cocaine and I met this wonderful girl uh, who's my wife today. And uh, the funny thing about this is that she said, hey, I know you. You're Jordan Lee. And I said, no, you don't know me. And she said, yeah, we went to junior high and high school together. And I said, well, that's tough because I didn't really go. And yeah. and uh, she says, well, let me see your ID. And I showed her and she said, well, we have the same birthday. We were born the same day, same month, same year. And and there was an interesting connection because when I'm doing drugs and alcohol, I'm not interested in women. I'm interested in in, in – Drugs and alcohol. The effect, right? Yeah. I'm here for effect, and that's the effect that I'm sh- that I'm shooting for. And we proceeded to get kicked out of her house, her friend's house, and everyone else that we knew. And then one night we stayed in, in an igloo up the canyon until my mom let us come in their basement. She went to jail on federal charges. Her name's uh, is pa- Payana, Chantel Payana Lee. And uh, she went to jail, and I honestly thought if she's going to detox in jail, I will detox with her. So I, I, I went to the floor – of a dope house detox for five days. Then my mom let me come back and stay. When she got out, she was going to meetings. And it's funny that she went to a sober living downtown called Project Recovery. Oh, really? And I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> on, on First South. Yeah. And so then I thought, I made fun. I was like, oh, I'm Jordan. I'm an addict. Now I'm going to go to these stupid meetings. I, I still resist anything that's good or healthy for a drug addict. Um, we resist at all costs. If we don't want to do it, it's probably really good for us. Yeah. So that's so that's what people told me at the beginning is, hey, if you don't want to do something, you should do that. But if you want to do something, don't do it and run it by somebody somebody that's been sober for a little good while. Good rule of thumb. Yeah. And so my wife and I, uh, she went to meetings. She was in a sober living. I was in mom's basement. And I remember that time it had escalated the, the shooting up of the coke, the heroin, and the meth and smoking them all because I, I have serious issues. And then drinking Kamchatka when when I could when afford a little bottle of cheap vodka, and it escalated to where I I I, I thought I was schizophrenic and that I was going to be schizophrenic for the rest of my life. And you were hallucinating. Delu- I was talking to people that yeah, weren't there yeah. for as a youth. I did that when I was doing that. That happened, and it comes back fairly fast for me. And so I remember opening the phone book and calling every treatment center. I had no insurance. I had no job. I had no money. And I remember calling every place asking, "Hey, can you take me? Can you help me?" She's in this really nice sober living downtown, and they have really nice therapists, and she, it feels like she's getting this help, and I'm not getting it. And I reached out, and I remember just almost begging for someone to help me, and, and I had no resources. And so I went to two or three meetings a day. Uh, I knew that I could stay sober if I made it to an early morning meeting, a noon meeting, and an evening meeting. And so, and then there was a night meeting always at the Alano or Fellowship Hall. And so for the next 90 days, I, I went to at least three to four meetings of 12-step recovery from all fellowships um, until I finally heard a solution that I needed to get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I needed to ask someone to sponsor me, and I needed to get a service commitment. And that's kind of when things for her and for me catapulted to where they are today. Um, and that's why we have the same sobriety date of, of August 1st of 2008, and we share the same birthday, which was the next day of August 2nd. That's, that's kind of, amazing. That's very cool. Yeah. That is. So, where what is life like today? Life's amazing. I have three. I have three kids. My oldest seven year old is Cooper, who's about to turn eight. I have Roxy, who's four years old, and then I have Chloe, who's three. And bath time, books, 
I mean, do you know what I mean? Getting the kids to school, helping my wife. My wife really has four kids. I'm I'm the, her oldest child. I can see that. <laughs> um, and um, life's amazing because of what I was able to do, uh, and and all the service commitments that I've done on a, on a on a group area, regional and worldwide level through the fellowships of twelve steps uh, have been an absolute amazing journey. The committees that I get to serve on today, the softball that I've been a part of now for 14 years, every Friday night, how we've grown the... the Sober softball? Sober softball league. Yeah. My wife and I have played with the same team for now 14 seasons every Friday night. And that, That's awesome. And we bring the kids. Um, I do an activity or an event to raise money for 12-step fellowships probably at least every two months. We're, we're involved in some sort of fundraising for nonprofit organizations uh, you, mostly Cocaine Anonymous. That's the fellowship that I've chose to be a part of because they're big on all mind-altering substances, and I need to hear that and be reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the best things in my share last night that I was able to attribute being sober this long, other than God, other than my higher power, just basically dragging me through, sometimes carrying me through, and walking side-by-side side with me through this recovery journey, was I was able to take a meeting into the ADC to the jail for... Um, every Wednesday night, and I did that for almost 10 years. Mm. And I talked about me going to jail. I went to jail on those charges, on the auto charges, multiple times, which probably saved my life, gave me a little pause, enough for me to get back out and then destroy everything really fast. But going into the jail and having a service commitment where nobody really knew I was going to do it or not was a big deal. Not getting that ego fed of, oh, I'm running the meeting, or oh, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. For me to deflate the ego and to be a, a, of service when nobody else is looking has been one of the biggest attributes of success and staying in God's world, which is huge. That's amazing. So how do you come a part of the Deer Hollow community? Um, I don't want to say that's tough, but it's uh, be, becoming the Deer Hollow staff or a Deer Hollow client. Well, uh, we're going to have to have you back. Well, I mean, tell I, me where we are. I well, mean, I, mean I, 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 I think we're going to have to have you back. Well, tell us what you're doing for Deer Hollow right now. So Deer Hollow, I am the director of special uh, services. And uh, Troy Long, the majority owner, and I have started Deer Hollow and been side by side in that since 2014. We opened the doors in 2015. And today is our all staff celebration of seven years in business, which is really exciting today at oh, four great. o'clock. And we are a trauma program. I believe we're the best trauma program in the nation, and we specialize in treating trauma and PTSD. So that means you work with? First responders. Right. Police, military, veterans, corrections, uh, EMS, military. They uh, they have seen a lot of success coming to Deer Hollow. And we don't just specialize in first responders, but it is a professional program. So it's there's a lot of science into it, the prefrontal cortex development of that. So we won't take anyone less than 26 years old. And our program's intense. It's 40 hours of dedicated trauma programming, 40 hours a week of dedicated trauma wow. programming. Um, and so it's not – That's full time. I would have never graduated our program. Uh, I don't think you would have either. Probably okay. not. <laughs> um, but it's a really intensive program with a lot of – Is it intensive because of the population you're working with and working with the PTSD? Is that why it's, it's so intensive? The population is great. Right. The tough thing is type A but personalities I mean, are tough, but when you're they've been through a lot. Right. Right. And that's, every that's, day you see people on their worst day. And that's Absolutely. something that that's important to note is that when you start working with a certain group of people, 
from a psychologist's point of view, you're also working most likely with a certain type of personality because our personality drives us to the thing to the professions that we seek out typically. And so first responders often are very all all or nothing type A um folks that uh go hard on everything that they do including dealing with you know an addiction. So I I think that you probably need a tough program for tough folks. Absolutely and everything that you said you could say that for uh drug addicts and alcoholics too. Sure. It, the last couple of years, I've been able to work side by side with an alum, uh, alumni of ours, Jared Nesri, who we've, we've been doing these trainings over the country. Every two weeks, we offer free mental health and awareness trainings directly into departments at no cost. And it's funny that a first responder wants to be helped by a first responder, just like mm-hmm. a drug addict needs to be helped by another drug addict. Mm-hmm. Now, both of them need additional therapy. They need you, right? They need they need a psychologist. They need therapy. But there, but I I agree with what you're saying because of those special needs and where the person's coming from, it, it makes a tremendous difference to be treated by somebody who's been there. Absolutely, and the similarities that I continue to see in the first responder community, they might not like being compared to this, but we need each other, right? The community needs each other, and if you tell me I've been where you've been, I know a way out then I'm going to listen to you. And you can usually qualify in a really short amount of time. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes the world a difference. With with drug addicts and first responders, after getting some really good treatment, the, the journey's not over. The disciplined action to follow, you can learn everything in the world in you know, 30, 60, 90 days. But the disciplined follow-up with a therapist and with qualified therapists is a really big deal. And the daily action and it's so big on like we only have today. That's the that's the reality of the situation is that we only have today and can we live in the moment and can we be of service and can we make an impact to the community? Uh, and and first responders, it's a cat and mouse game. It seemed like I was always trying to get away from them as a child. And in turn, <laughs> we both ended up sick, right? Right. I'm trying to escape the first responders. They're trying to catch me. And then what happened is we both end up sick. Mm. That's an interesting point of view. And so it's been a pleasure to have the ability for the last seven years to give back to the community that that I, I feel like doesn't get enough credit for making the impact on my other fellowship and my other community of drug addicts and alcoholics. Because mm-hmm. it turns out we love each other. Oh, yeah. That's cool. You're chasing <laughs> them now. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> You're trying to help them out. Yeah, I'm trying to help yeah, them out yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah Absolutely. Jordan, we're going to have you back because I would love to talk more about uh, the first responders and the program that you're doing because there's a lot of those who listen to the podcast. If they're looking out for someone to talk to, uh, somewhere to get help, how can they get get a hold of you? They can email me at Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at DeerHollowRecovery.com. And am I okay to give out my cell phone number? Yes. Okay. My cell phone number is 801-833-6932. And I'll take a call or text, an email, any time or day of night. And if we're not in the right place, we won't stop until we find a safe place for anyone that's struggling. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts about the uh, amazing uh, Jordan Lee? (laughs) Well, there's so much that we talked about today. Like I I would have to sit down and process this for an hour. (laughs) But uh, my takeaway is service. I I just think that that that's such a cool uh, thing to focus on. And I think you've, it sounds like, recognize the value of serving other people in your life and definitely in your recovery. And if anybody wants to know, how can I feel better today? 
Go find some place you can do some service. So thank you for bringing that message and everything else that we talked about today. And I think for me, it should be a lesson uh, to those out there listening that, uh, yeah, bad things happen to everybody, but you are the victor of your own life and you can decide where it's going and you want to say you've been through some bad stuff. Listen to this podcast again. You've been through (laughs) hell and back, Jordan, and, uh, you're here surviving and not only surviving, you're thriving. And I applaud you, man. I think, I think it's amazing what you're doing and I can't wait to have you back. Thank you very much. You're listening to project recovery. It is a KSL podcast. Wow. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.